the, the, the Buddha was born into a royal family of uh, the, uh, the royal family of a small kingdom in the area of the, the border area of India and Nepal. And he was raised as a prince and raised to be the heir to the throne. And the, the texts tell us that the Buddha was raised with considerable wealth and great luxury and privilege and power. And um, he had, um, he had a, a beautiful wife and a young child and he had all his wealth and he was pretty secure in his job prospects. And um, it seemed like he had everything going for him. And then some, some events in his life indicated to him, pointed out, showed him that in fact he was in the midst of all this comfort and ease and wealth and luxury, he was actually experiencing dukkha. And yesterday I, I briefly mentioned this word dukkha and, um, and gave some of, the, some of the meanings of it, some of the translations of it. And just, just to, to review that, um, the most common translation of dukkha is suffering. And suffering is, it's not a great translation because of the interpretation that we have come to put on the word suffering. Um, so other, other translations that try to get closer to the meaning of dukkha are unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction. Um, stress is the most current attempt at translating it. <laughs> uh, anguish, discontent. Um, basically, dukkha... Um, the Buddha, in his, in his longer definition of, of dukkha, he, he included the phrases um, getting what we don't want and not getting what we want. And, um, and it's, it's also, um, it's also just, just uh, uh, an absence of ease in being. It's that looking for something else or feeling a need for something else, something that keeps us from being at ease and being present in life in this moment. And so we can see that dukkha has quite a, a range of meanings and, and quite a range of subtlety. So there, there's, there's the very, the, the more gross aspect of, of suffering, what we would call suffering. And then there's these, the, the whole range down to the, the most subtle movements of mind and heart away from what is to get to something else or to get something else to come to us, to get what we want or to get rid of what we don't want. And so the Buddha, the Buddha came to a point where he recognized that even with all that he had, when he looked within his being, he recognized that there was this, this dukkha, this dis-ease, this inability to be at rest, to be at peace with life. And I would guess that all of us here 
when we look at our lives, we recognize that to some degree, whether it's the gross suffering or whether it's the more, the more subtle, we would recognize that there is that in our lives. And so when the, when the Buddha recognized that, um, he set out, as probably as many or most or perhaps all of us here have, he set out to see if he could find a way of being in the world, living in the world, without this, without the dukkha. To, to be in the world in a way that there was um, a sense of ease and of peacefulness in the world, being at ease in the world, being free from this, this, these forces that propel us to other, propel us away from what is. And so he set out from the palace with strong determination to, to, to explore and to discover this, and he settled into the spiritual practices of the day. He went to meet with different teachers, and he took up the practices of the day. And, and initially, the practices that he took up were strong concentration practices, and the kind of the kinds of concentration that involved effort and kind of <coughs> containing the mind. And, and, and kind of driving the mind into deep absorption states where the sense of self kind of disappears and, and, and one is left in just a state of peacefulness. And his teachers said to him, that's it, you've got it. There's nothing more, that's, that's the end of the line. Sit up here. <laughs> and and, the, and the, Buddha, the Buddha recognized um, quite quickly that that this kind of concentration and the, these states, as wonderful as they were, they were very much dependent on certain conditions. The conditions of being in a quiet place, the conditions of the effort, of the, the containing of the mind, and, and all the effort that that takes. And, and he noticed that as soon as the conditions changed, that peacefulness went away. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so, the, so, so he wasn't satisfied with that because he recognized it wasn't a peacefulness that would allow him to be in the world. And so he moved on to another form of practice which was very common and, and still very common in India in, in many different forms. You see, we still see in India, people practicing these these uh, these meditations, these practices uh, that have been going on for thousands of years. And what he what he settled into next was the extreme ascetic practices. And the the idea being that through these extreme ascetic practices, you can purify the being and and burn up, as it were, your your karma, your past karma, and and through that come to a place of of peace and, and ease and and bring the, the dukkha to an end. And so the Buddha took up these 
extreme practices and and again in the text we get very um, very vivid descriptions from the Buddha of what these practices were and some of them were rather disgusting <laughs> and uh, very intense and the the ones that the one that he gives perhaps the most detailed description of is the fasting and he'd spend long periods of fasting and uh, and he said he would he would eat two grains of rice per day and then he would eat one grain of rice per day and he'd go for long periods of time like this and he said through these practices which were meant to purify and to burn up the karma he got to the point where when he touched his belly, he could feel his spine. And when he touched his spine, he could feel his belly. He was so emaciated and so thin. And we see, we see statues of, of the Buddha in, in India and in, in, the, uh, in the Buddhist countries of just literally a skeleton with skin hanging from it, with the flesh hanging from the bones. And, and that's how he described himself. And what he realized with this was that he wasn't really getting any more pure or burning up any of his karma. He realized he was just getting too weak and sick to practice. And so he realized that in, in these extreme ascetic practices, there was also dukkha. And so he, he recognized that this was not the path. And then he, um, he, had, he had a little bit of an, of an awakening at that point. He, he decided to abandon the path of, of the asceticism, the extreme asceticism. And, um, and he was wondering, well, what else is there? Well, I've tried the luxury path. I've tried the, the ascetic path. And, um, and they're both full of dukkha. What's, what else is there? And he... He, um, he had a moment of, of inspiration in which he remembered a moment when, as, as a young prince, he was sitting under a tree watching his father conducting the first plowing of the season. There was a big ceremony to start the, 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 heart of the growing season of the year, and the king would go out and plow the first furrow. And he remembered sitting under the tree watching this, and, and, and as he was watching, he remembered that just a very deep peace kind of descended on him or arose within him. And he remembered sitting under this tree being completely at ease with the world and yet being in the world, watching, watching his father plowing and fully aware of everything that was going on. And he remembered this incident and he thought, oh, perhaps, perhaps there's something in this. And and so he um, remembered this, and maybe, um, maybe with some idea of, oh, how can I get that back? <laughs> when he sat under a tree. <laughs> so, he, so he sat under this, under the, he sat under the tree, and he sat down with a determination that he would not leave until he had accomplished what he was setting out accomplish. And so he sat down and what came to him was to watch his breath, give attention to his breath. And he began, he began practicing mindfulness of breathing. 
And through the mindfulness of breathing, he was able to settle to this to this state of, of clarity, of peacefulness, of ease, of calmness, of equanimity, of concentration, of interest, of energy. All the all the factors that he, he later described as factors for awakening. And and so through the practice these over over the course of one night, these qualities all arose within him, and the consequence of it was that he had a series of insights, following which he was able to say, it's done. There's nothing more to do. And then he spent, he spent several weeks reflecting on his experiences, reflecting on his insights, and um, and decided that he would attempt to to convey this to others, and and he summed up he summed up his his um, his insights in four statements. And uh, I know most of you or many of you know these statements. I've heard them so many times, but I think it's always worth hearing them again and reflecting on them. And the first of these statements was um, is 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 so obvious, and yet at the same time so profound. And it's kind of like that. Uh, if you noticed often when a when a, a very profound insight comes, it's like oh, it's like I knew that, and yet it it touches it touches somehow in in a different way, in a deeper way. It has has an effect on the being because it's 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 really coming from within the being, not not just coming as a as an idea. And so the his, his first his first insight was was simply the fact that in life we experience dukkha. Very very obvious, and I, I don't think any of us would dispute that. And I think all of us would say, well, that's pretty obvious. I could have thought of that. But again, when it comes as an insight, when it comes out of an actual experience, rather than coming out of thinking about something, it's a very different effect. And and the Buddha in 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 stating this, I think he's he, he, he was stating it as, as an invitation to us to explore this, to look into our lives and to see where there is dukkha in our lives. Our, our tendency is when, when dukkha shows, we try to get rid of what we don't like or get what we like. And, and, our, and our very attempts to end our dukkha so often just create more. At the very least, they don't, our, our efforts don't often end the dukkha. And, and so the Buddha is, is inviting us to, rather than fleeing from the dukkha or trying to get rid of it, to pay attention to it to open to it, 
And in that paying attention and in that opening is the possibility of realizing the second of the Buddha's four statements. And the second statement is the cause of dukkha. So the Buddha kind of reasoned, okay, if I, if I recognize dukkha, and I want to end it, to end it, I have to know what the cause is. To really, to end something, I have to remove the cause. So it's, it's kind of like um, when you're out, if you're out weeding the garden, you can pluck off the tops of the weeds, and you stand back and you look, ah, oh, the weeds are all gone. Looks, looks great. And you come back the next day, and oh, there they all are again. It just popped up again, so you can keep plucking them off. But to really get rid of the roots, the, the, the weeds, you have to get the roots. So you have to find the underlying cause. And, 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 and the, the, Buddha, the Buddha frequently used the term uprooting, to uproot the causes of dukkha. And so the second, the second of these four statements is that the cause of dukkha is in craving and clinging. The cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. So, so what the Buddha is, is, is pointing out here is that wherever there's dukkha, wherever we're experiencing dukkha, underlying there is some craving, obsession, a drive to get something or to get rid of something. And the, and, and the getting and the getting rid of are forms of clinging, holding on, grasping. So I get something that I like and that I think is going to give me peace and happiness and I hold on to it. I cling to it. Something comes that I don't like I'm trying to get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. And the getting rid of, trying to get rid of, is just another variation of clinging. If I feel that I have to get rid of something, there must be some holding on to it initially. If I weren't holding on to it, why would I have to get rid of it? So the, the attempt to get rid of something is actually a, a form of clinging. And so the so the Buddha in the second statement says the cause of dukkha is in craving and clinging. And through this through this realization, through this realization comes the possibility of letting go, of non-grasping, of non-craving. And that brings the third statement, which is there is an end to dukkha. The end of dukkha lies in the end of craving and clinging. So the Buddha, the Buddha, through these three realizations, came to know and to understand deeply the ending of dukkha. And then, in his in his reflections, he was able to to kind of reflect back and think, okay, if I want to present this someone, this to this to others. I have to be able to present a way for others to come to these insights, to come to these realizations, or for, or a way to allow these realizations to come for them. And so he, 
So he formulated what he called the noble path. The noble path. And, and the fourth of these four statements is the path. And he, he got, I'm not, not going to go into the path. The, the path has eight parts to it. It's called the noble eightfold path. Again, as many of you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into that this evening. But he... Um, so he, so he formulated this path, and he called this path the middle path. When he, when he, um, when he gave his first teachings, when he, in, in his first teaching, he, he went to um, a group of friends who had been practicing with him, and when he, when he gave up the ascetic practices and started eating, they kind of left, and they were thoroughly disgusted with him, and thought he was kind of giving up and turning soft, and reverting to his luxurious life. And so they left, and, and after his awakening, he went and he found them, and he said, oh, listen to this, just listen to this. And, and he, he said, what I've found is the middle path. And the middle path is the path that avoids extremes. The path that avoids extremes. And so he had, he had recognized in the one extreme of the luxury of the palace and, and all of that, there was dukkha. And in the other extreme of the ascetic practices, there was also dukkha. And he recognized that the, the solution, the, the ending of the dukkha, was somewhere in the middle, the middle path, that didn't go to these extremes but didn't go to these extremes. So if we think of, if we, if we look at our own practice and look at our own lives from this perspective, this perspective of, of middle path, I think um, what many of us would possibly recognize is that our lives, to some extent, are swinging back and forth between extremes. So one, one example that, that often shows is going from the extreme of a very busy, frantic, hectic life, getting burned out, and then saying, ah, oh, I need a retreat to get some peace and quiet and calm my mind down and get some rest and some good food. And, and so we, we go to the other extreme. We come on retreat, and we just kind of, huh, just kind of settle. A few days of tiredness, and nodding off, and sleeping a lot, eating good food, and then we start to wake up, and then um, start to feel good, and we get calmness, and peace, and ah, huh, wow, okay, ready to go back out in the world. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and, and convinced that somehow we're going to be able to keep this. <laughs> Back out into the world, hectic, frantic, burnout, time for another retreat. Back to retreat, and we have these swings. And then at some point, we recognize, wait a minute, this, is, this just isn't working. We have the same realization that the Buddha had, just swinging from one extreme to another. And then the question comes, okay, what's the middle path? How to integrate? The question comes, 
up of integrating the two more. So we so we come on retreat and we get nice and calm and peaceful and quiet and have some lovely insights and 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 we go home determined to work a little bit less and sit a little bit more. Or do a little bit more qigong or whatever it is that we, we find supportive and helpful. So we go back and first day is great, get up in the morning and half an hour of qigong, half an hour of sitting, go off to work, remember to breathe during the day. <laughs> and um, great, second day, good, third day, oh, slept in half an hour. What should I do? Should I skip the qigong or should I skip the sitting? Deep to them here. <laughs> and, and, and what so often happens is that gradually you just get back to the old habit. And the, and the pendulum continues to swing. So what, what is the middle path? Now, our, the, the way that we tend to look at the middle path, and, and, and I think this shows in, the, in this example, is we, we tend to think of it in terms of, well, if I get more of this and less of this and kind of get just the right amount of this extreme and just the right amount of this extreme and kind of put them together, they'll be in balance. Yeah? Do you notice that? Have you seen that in, in any area of your life? You get, get a little bit of balance in life. I think it's balanced by having just the right amount of this, maybe just the right diet, and just the right amount of exercise, and, and just the perfect job, and, and just the right amount of meditation every day. And, you know, and every couple of months I'll go into a retreat and, and, and get it all just right. And then that's the middle path, because it's all in balance. And sometimes it happens. It? Sometimes it happens. Sometimes the conditions all seem to come together in a way that our life really does feel balanced. It's, it's kind of like you've got the pendulum. The pendulum's been swinging back and forth and back and forth. And then at some point, it actually does come to rest. The pendulum stops swinging. And we think, ah, oh, great finally got it. And then we lose our job or um, get sick or someone else gets sick. Something happens and it's like it's like a strong wind comes and it starts blowing the pendulum. And the pendulum starts swinging again. Yeah, that experience? So that, that kind of middle path, that kind of middle path from the, from the, the perspective of, of getting just the right amounts of everything and just getting, bringing it all together, it will, it will bring some steadiness. And there is value in that. But it's very important that we realize it's dependent on conditions that are going to change. And what it, what it means is that the, the, the center point, in a sense, is a moving target. 
and every time the conditions change, we have to change something else to get that balance back. And so, so our attempt to get balance is an ongoing attempt at getting something and getting rid of something. And that, that attempt to find balance actually becomes a condition for imbalance. And of course, it's, it's better than just continue doing this. It's a big improvement over, over this. But still, it's not complete balance. And, and I think this is, this is what the Buddha recognized in his, um, in the, in his concentration practices. The concentration practices brought this, but as soon as the conditions changed, it started up again. So how to find the balance? How to find a still point that isn't so dependent on getting all just the right conditions? There's a question left on the on the notice board from, from me and Brad. And um, in a sense it has to do with with it, with this, with the the extremes. It's kind of setting up two extremes. Uh, I find some conflict in A, having an inquiring mind being interested in the nature of what is, while B accepting things just as they are. Okay? So so what we could what 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 comes to me as a as a summary here is a is a conflict between two extremes of doing and being. And and there's a very common extremes that show for us on retreat. And, and we have this, and, and in fact, just coming on retreat is like that. It's like we see our lives as just full of doing. And then we come on retreat and say, oh, I have to learn how to just be. And we set ourselves up again for the extreme, to go from extreme of being to extreme being. So what's, what's, what's the middle, what's the middle path in, in these two? The inquiring, interested mind and the accepting of things just as they are. Of course, there's, there's lots of ways of, of looking at this and, and coming to some understanding of, of what, what the middle path could be. Um, but one, one approach to it is, is, is to look at what's actually meant by inquiring interested mind and what's actually meant by accepting things just as they are. So are these, are these ideas, concepts, phrases, words, are they, in fact, in conflict with each other? Or is the conflict just in the way that we interpret them or understand them? And last night, Brad spoke about how we can change our relationship to things. And, and perhaps this is an example of how changing relationship change, so changing the understanding of what's meant by these. So the, the, the acceptance of things just as they are um, 
which we could see as the as the being, the being aspect. Just being, just accepting, just being with things just as they are. What what does this mean and, and why would we want to do it? So accepting things as they are to me means to to open to things as they're showing in this moment. And what goes along with that as as an as an important um, what's the word? What, what what what's important to to understand along with that is the fact that things change. And accepting things as they are in this moment, very important not to take that to mean that they'll stay that way. It's only in this moment. It's just accepting things as they are in this moment. Why would I want to accept things just as they are in this moment? Well, for one thing, if I'm, if I'm fully accepting what is in this moment, then I'm not looking for something else. I'm not trying to get rid of it. So just in that accepting, there's an ending of dukkha. But on a, perhaps on a, on a more mundane level, or, or a level to kind of come to that understanding, the accepting of things as they are is a means which allows us to give attention to the thing. So if I'm accepting something as it is, then I can give it attention. If I'm trying to change it, it's very difficult to give it attention in a way that I can understand it. If I'm trying to get rid of something, it's very difficult to have much insight about it If I'm trying to change something, it's very difficult to understand how it actually is. And so so the, the acceptance of things as they are is a form which allows for the inquiring, interested mind. And when we when we when we think about what's an inquiring interested mind. I think our our training and our conditioning tells us that an inquiring, interested mind probably means thinking about it, trying to figure it out, trying to get something, trying to understand, trying to know. Inquiring, interested mind is commonly, I would say, interpreted as a doing mind. A doing mind. And the mind gets fired up. Okay, how can I, how can I do this? What, can I, what do I need to do? How do I inquire? And when we see acceptance as just accepting, that's how it is, and I have to accept that. And when we see inquiring, interested mind as thinking about, figuring out, trying to understand, and there's conflict. The two are in conflict, the doing and the being. But if we can if we can open to accepting as just in this moment, 
and just as a support to allow them to give attention. And if we can, if we can understand um, an inquiring, interested mind, just as that giving attention. The very fact of giving attention is giving interest, is looking into, or can be looking into, in a way that it is an inquiry. An inquiry that doesn't involve a lot of doing. And so the, the, the acceptance and the inquiry, in a sense, are exactly the same thing. There's no difference. They come together. Two sides of the coin. And so there's no conflict. So whenever we whenever we have a sense of these these polarities, these dualisms, these oppositions, these opponents, it may be helpful just to look and see what, what do I understand by this? What do I understand by that? Is there a different way of looking at this? Is there, is there a way of embracing the two that appear to be extremes, that appear to be opposites? Is there something, is there something that unites these? Is there something that can bring them together? If we come back to the, the pendulum, the extremes are here and here. And we think of the middle path as being in the middle, here. So, it's, so there's, a, there's this arc here, and the middle path is, is the, the center point on the arc. And we, and we so easily take that to be the middle path, the middle path. That's the balance point. But if we look closely, and look and see, okay, what's, what's joining these? What, what unites these? What can bring the extremes together? We so easily get fixed on looking on the line, looking along this line here. If we think of this, this phrase that's become so common in the last maybe five or six years, I see it so often this phrase coming up, think outside of the box. Think outside of the line. What, what can bring these together? You think outside of the line, up here. Here. Right there. There's a still point. It's connected to this. It's connected to this. It unites them. When this is still, this is also still. When this is moving, this is still still. Think outside the box. Look, look outside the box. Look off of the line. Step back. Step out of this back and forth from one extreme to another. The, 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 the accepting, the accepting and the inquiry, the, the accepting is, is really an important factor in allowing for that kind of stepping back. It gets us out of the <laughs> sometimes the, the 
the pendulum becomes a treadmill, doesn't it? It goes round and round and round. Because instead of just going like this, it goes all the way around. And then and that stepping back can be like stepping off of the treadmill. And 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 in that in that in that acceptance there can just be a stopping, a pausing, taking the opportunity to really look closely. And in that looking closely to 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 perhaps looking in, in looking closely from a place that's not caught in the treadmill, it's not caught in the swings of the pendulum, perhaps perhaps to come to know at this point. Perhaps to come to know this point. And to know this point as a as a a place of ease, a place of peace, a place of rest that isn't dependent on the condition of this stopping. And the the interested inquiring mind is the factor that is, is one of the factors that is necessary to allow this understanding, this insight to be revealed to us. So in the practice, in the meditation, give, give attention to where you, you, you feel like you're caught or where you actually are caught between extremes. And, 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 and look and see what, what could be the middle path here. What is it that can, can bring these extremes together in a way that perhaps the pendulum can actually stop? Or perhaps it doesn't need to stop? And in finding that, perhaps knowing the end. So let's sit quietly together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.